Good evening and welcome. Well, let me just give you a, a praise report. Sunday morning, of course, we, we announced that Sunday evening would be the final night of the 99, the walkthrough reality theater in Odessa. Appreciate everybody that went over and worked, and we, we had people working in a wide variety of, of, uh, of uh, ways. We had counselors, prayer counselors, ministering to people. Uh, we had ushers, workers. We had uh, Norman kept guarded the exit door all night long. He said, he was quoting the verse, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my Lord. And we, nobody knows how the, that verse ends, but we all know the, you looked it up? Then, in, then to be in the tents of the wicked, we, you were in the tent of the righteous, not the tent of the wicked there. We, uh, people prepared food on more than one occasion. And of course, with our pastor, Josh, we had Jesus there almost every night. So anyway, appreciate all of the work. Let me give you, they uh, had a record-breaking night, Sunday night. I don't remember the exact figure, but I know it was over, over 3,500 people went through that night alone. Total in the, in the three weekends or the nine nights there in Odessa, they had over 17,000 people go through. And that's the, the largest crowd they've ever had in any city. So how many of you know we're, we're the best? So we, we did. Seven, over 17,000 went through and over 4,000 people acknowledged that they were praying and accepting Christ into their heart. And so that was just tremendous. God bless all of you for your work and everything, prayer, everything that you did. Yay. Okay. Now Sunday I said I'm going to start something new on Wednesday nights. And that is, I'm going to give myself a section of time that uh, I can do anything I want to do. And it doesn't have to relate to what I'm teaching or preaching or anything. And uh, like I did, and I, I started actually last Wednesday night. How many of you remember what I did last Wednesday? Played you a song, right? Played you a Ray Stevens song. Now, it was, it was spiritual, sort of. No, it wasn't the streak or, you know, it, it, it wasn't the Shriner Convention. It, it was, what was the name of that song? If 10% is good enough for Jesus, it ought to be enough for Uncle Sam. And, and that was just fun. So, so I, I, I may make commentaries on politics. I'll, I'll focus at times on Israel. Tonight, it's somewhat serious. But it's new news, and I'm calling this the news behind the news. This came out the week of March 27th, the week of March 27th. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, reported that births to unwed mothers in the United States during the year 2007 reached an all-time high of about Don't guess out loud, just think. I'll give you some hints. And understand, I'm not condemning any individual or criticizing. But you know, this is a serious problem in our country of children growing up without a mommy and a daddy. And my commentary tonight is, kids need a mommy and a daddy. It's just better that way. God knew what he was doing. And uh, Kim and I having raised and still raising three kids, I promise you, every parent knows. There are times you've reached your limit. 
You've done all you can do. You need to step back and pass, <laughs> pass that child on to the other parent for a while. I remember when Paul was just a toddler and, and there were, there were, Kim was a stay-at-home mom at that time. We just had a policy. When I got home from work, I was teaching public school. When I got home from work, she would greet me at the door, hand me Paul, and, and he was mine. Because she'd been with him all day and she needed a break. So she, she likes to cook. It wasn't punishment for her. She would go in the kitchen and she had about an hour to an hour and a half that she did not have to worry about that little toddler. And he was my responsibility. If he needed fed, changed, or rocked, or, or, or you know, and I'd use big rocks. And if, <laughs> thank you. If, it, you know, whatever attention he needed for that hour, hour and a half, it was my responsibility because she needed a break. And you see, that's what happens when you don't have a mommy and a daddy. The kid doesn't get, A, doesn't get enough attention, and B, doesn't get enough discipline. Because you just get tired. And you just think, I, you know, I'm just going to let the kid run wild here because I'm tired of being the disciplinarian here. Kids need a mommy and a daddy. And, and in 1940, the percentage of, of, uh, of children being born without a mom and a dad was 4%. I remember, and I wrote this down, I went through my files tonight and I pulled out the back of an envelope. I don't know about you, but when I can't find anything to write on, I just grab an envelope, you know, out of the, the junk mail stack and just start scribbling. I've written more sermons on the back of, of envelopes. And I pulled out my folder today, and on April the 12th, 1985, Tom Brokaw on the NBC Nightly News reported the statistic of children being born to, to unwed mothers was all the way up to 19%. The CDC now says it's at 40%. 40% of American babies don't have a daddy. Okay? And uh, all the nation will pay a terrible price. Children without mom and dad at home are growing up much like children of divorce. And there's, I've got 20 years of research in my files. Kids growing up in a divorced family without a mom and a dad there, they have unresolved anger, they worry about their parents, they have divided loyalties, they worry about money because how many of you know when a mom and dad is split up all of a sudden there's two rents and two electric bills and you know it costs more so there's less money for children children pay for it they have poor coping strategies uh, children are divorced rank lower in academic achievement they just have they have low, lower grades they're not dumber but they have lower grades in school uh, they fall behind in communication social interaction uh, they fall behind in their work effort. And in fact, studies show they're not as happy. They're not even as healthy because it affects them mentally, emotionally, physically in every way. Um, <clears throat> they get in, uh, especially girls are much more likely to get involved in a sexual relationship because they, let me tell you what, girls need a daddy. And if they don't have a daddy at home, they reach for that male love in the backseat of a car. Uh, these kids grow up, they're much more likely to get involved in alcohol abuse, drug abuse, sexual activity, things like that. 
One of the great shocks that has been discovered, and this is now proven statistically, there, there used to be a big hubbub about men in prison. And people were saying, well, certain minorities, there must be prejudice because there's a higher percentage of blacks in prison than whites. Now they found out that's not the case. They found out this is the truth. It's true with whites, it's true with Hispanics, it's true with blacks. The same percentage of men are in prison if you look at one thing. Do they have a father at home? Kids who grow up without fathers at home, I'm not talking about that there's a sperm donor out there somewhere. Kids who grow up without a father in their home are much more likely to get involved into criminal activity and end up in prison, and it is the same percentage. Listen, it is the same percentage of white, black, Hispanics. It's not the color of their skin. It's the fact they didn't have a daddy there to show them right from wrong and sometimes spank their bottom. And they end up in prison. Not because of the color of their skin, but because of do they have a dad. Whoops. Don't worry, it's fake. <laughs> what? Don't tell all the secrets? Okay. So, not only do we pay the price of, of kids, a higher percentage of people going to prison because they haven't had a dad there to show them right from wrong, to, to raise them, to discipline them, to love them. But have you ever thought about what it costs the taxpayer, costs you in taxes? You know, my wife and... and uh, and uh, Sandra, Pastor Josh's wife, my wife and Sandra went and counseled with a, with a teenage girl who found out she was pregnant. And their counsel was, the best thing you can do for this baby is to let a mommy and a daddy raise this baby. I know I'm hurting some, I'm, I'm hurting some feelings right here. But if you're 15, 16, and you're going to have a baby, you may not be, the, you may not be able to, to provide the best environment for that baby. And my wife and Sandra went to a girl in this church and said, and really tried to talk her into letting a mom and a dad adopt this baby and love this baby. How many of you know I don't believe in abortion, but I do believe in adoption. And, and of course, you know, like so many, just this, this, this teenager was not into that, didn't want to hear that. And they said, well, how are you going to raise for the... How are you going to raise this baby? How are you going to pay for this baby? How are you going to buy diapers? How are you going to buy food? How are you going to provide for this child? And, and the answer was simple. Well, I'm going to get on WIC, and I'm going to get on food stamps, I'm going to get on welfare, I'm going to do all that. And that's just people's an answer. I'm going to let everybody else pay for my mistakes. Births to unwed mothers right now in America cost all of society, and again, we hear numbers, and we don't even know how big these numbers are. Every year, it is a minimum of 112 billion, that's with a B, 112 billion dollars. Now that means every nine years, that's that trillion dollar figure. Let me put it to another way. If we look at, if we look at the budget in America today that you're hearing so much about in the news, and we have a trillion dollar deficit, which we do, we have a trillion dollar deficit. Do you know that 10% of that deficit is due to unwed 
mothers having babies because we have to pay. In so many cases, for their food, for their clothing, for their diapers, for their housing, for their daycare, for their medical care. When there is a mom and a daddy out there who would adopt that child and love that child and pay all of these expenses. Anyway, that's my commentary for tonight. It's not always going to be this serious. But folks, I just want you to know that the teaching of the local church is more important in our society than ever before. Because it's only in the church that we're taking a stand for the family. The father has been replaced by the federal government. Amen. Okay, everybody take a deep breath. Roger, come up, tell a joke. Let's change gears here completely. That's, that's very true. All right, let's go to Daniel chapter 8, switching gears completely. We're going to have some fun tonight. Daniel chapter 8. Beginning at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Uli. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But, but he did according to his will and became great. Now as in the visions before, this ram represents a world empire, a kingdom. It was the next empire that is about to take place and is very soon going to conquer Babylon. And we don't even have to go to the history books or try to understand who this empire is because Daniel wrote it right here in, in verse 20. In verse 20 we see who the ram represents. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. So the ram is the joint empire called Medo-Persia and is often in our history books just shortened to the Persian Empire. So the two horns, and horns represents king or kingdoms, two horns, one higher than the other, they represent the joint kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, Darius, 
king of the Medes, Cyrus the king of the Persians, they merged their empire and they conquered the known world in Babylon at the time. Now the Bible says that, the, that this kingdom conquered to the west, that represents Babylon. By the way, Persia is what, what is the modern day country? What do we call Persia today? If you look at a map today, what is it called? Iran with an N. Babylon is called what today? Iraq. And if you, if you get at your map, Iran is to the east, so it pushes to the west. It first conquered Babylon to the west, then it went north and, and conquered Lydia, then it went south and conquered Egypt. So when it says it pushed or conquered to the west, to the north, and to the south, Persia conquered Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. And this corresponds to the same vision in chapter 7 where you see the bear eating three ribs or those three countries. Okay, now go back to your Bible and begin at verse 5. We'll continue with this vision. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west. Everybody say west. And of course this animal is going to represent a future empire or kingdom. Came from the west. Came very fast across the surface of the whole earth without even touching the ground. That's fast. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Now, who is this goat? Who does this goat represent? Look down at verse 21, and we get the answer. The male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is what? The first king. Who's the first, who's the king being described here? The king of Greece. Alexander the Great. Okay, so let's go to the next slide here. We have here, this is, let me back up in your mind, the Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. This would be Iran, you see, modern-day Afghanistan, modern-day Pakistan, all the way to the borders of India. This is the Indus River right here. But Iraq here, Syria, Jordan, Israel, Egypt, Turkey, of course. Now, the Persian Empire never got over into Greece. So let's go to the next slide here. We see that the goat represents the empire of Greece. It came from the west. Can we back up one? You see right here, Greece came from the west, conquered all the way through here to Egypt, all the way down to India. Okay, that's a huge area in a short period of time. So Alexander the Great came from the west, Without touching the ground refers to the speed of his conquest, the, the large notable horn that the Bible refers to as the first king of this empire. Truly it was Alexander the Great. But it, the Bible says that this large horn was broken, and that represents his death. He died very young at the age of 32, having conquered all of these empires and nations that you saw on the map. All right? Now in your Bibles, go back to verse 8. In Daniel chapter 8, verse 8, Therefore the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken. That's Alexander the Great. He died fairly suddenly. He died without an heir. He was, he was only 32. He didn't have a, a child old enough who could have 
uh, in any way taken over the kingdom. And in the place of Alexander and his kingdom, the Bible says there in verse 8 that four notable ones, four more horns, came up toward the four winds of heaven. And if you want to know the interpretation of that, go to verse 22. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. None of those four kingdoms, of course, equal the power of Alexander the Great. And so, let's go to the next slide here. Uh, we see this is Alexander's empire, basically the same as Persia, a little bit larger, and of course including this part of Europe here, Greece and Macedonia. So we go to the next slide, and we see that the four kingdoms are the four kingdoms that rise out of Alexander's empire after his death. And, and these are the names of the generals who took control when he died. Basically, there was a brief time of some civil war between the guys, and when the dust settled, these are the four generals who basically claimed themselves now as kings over that. Now, all of these guys were Europeans. All of these guys were, came from Greece and Macedonia. Cassander took over that, that area of Europe, Greece and Macedonia. Lysimachus took over Asia Minor, which we now call Turkey. Ptolemy, the P is silent. Ptolemy, this Greek guy, took over Egypt. And, and for the next hundreds of years until the Roman Empire took over, for about 300 years, these Greek Europeans are the kings of each of these areas. And as you study and read about the descendants of Ptolemy and their family, there, was, uh, there were a number of people with this same name, but Hollywood has made one of those pretty girls very, very famous. How many of you have ever heard about a pretty girl who came out of Egypt, you know, and her name was Cleopatra, okay? Cleopatra was a Greek European girl, descendant of Ptolemy here, and it's her family who is ruling and controlling Egypt for hundreds of years until the Romans finally took over. And then there's this guy named Seleucus who basically got everything else. And I'll give you a map where I've kind of got it marked on this map here. Of course, Greece is here, Macedonia is here, that's part of Europe. This is what we call in the Bible, what is called Asia in the Bible. It's really Asia Minor, modern day, the land of Turkey. And, of course, Egypt you're familiar with. It's, it's been under the same name now for thousands and thousands of years. And Seleucus basically got all the rest of the kingdom. And this, of course, would be Lebanon and Syria right here, on down to Iraq right here, Persia here, and then even further to Afghanistan and, and Pakistan would be included in this, in this reign. Now, their seat of power was always more here in Syria and Damascus. And so what a lot of people refer to this region that was controlled by Seleucus is called Greater Syria. It's not just the small country of Syria that we have today, but Greater Syria. And these represents these four kingdoms that, that arise out of Alexander's empire. Now go back to your Bible and look at verse 9. We have these four kingdoms that, that existed for hundreds of years after Alexander's death. Verse 9 says, out of one of them. Out of what, out of, what of them what? 
out of one of these four, okay, read verse 8, go into verse 9, out of one of these four kingdoms now, we have, Bible says in verse 9, came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Any guesses on the glorious land? Israel, that is right. Verse 10 says it grew up to the host of heaven. It cast down some of the, uh, of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. That's reminiscent of the prophecy in Revelation chapter 12, verse 4. Bible says in verse 11, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression or sin, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifice, the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this, and the Bible says he prospered. Now skip down to verse 23, and this is kind of the interpretation of what we just read. Beginning in verse 23, the Bible says, And in the latter time of their kingdom, so when does this take place? The latter time. When the transgressors, sinners, have reached their fullness. You know, there's many references in the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament, about sin reaching its fullness. The Bible says a king shall arise having fierce features who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully. He shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. He shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity, he shall even rise against, and this is a very important phrase, even against the prince of princes. Of course, we know who the prince of princes is. That's Jesus Christ. But he shall be broken without human means. And of course, if you study history and you study the Seleucid Empire here, uh, approximately 150 years before Christ, we run into a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, actually the fourth, Antiochus the fourth, and he is the guy that after he failed to conquer Egypt and he left there humiliated, that he took his anger out on the Jewish people. He did desecrate the temple. He did sacrifice a pig on the altar of sacrifice there. And there is no doubt he is in many ways a forerunner or a prefigure of the Antichrist. But there are things in this passage that let us know that Antiochus does not fulfill all of these things. Uh, for example, here it says that he grows powerful toward the east, toward the south, which would be is always Egypt here in Daniel, and to the glorious land. Um, there, and, and Antiochus does not fulfill that because every time he got into a, a war or a fight with Egypt, he got his tail kicked. He does not fulfill this passage. There's too many references in here, like in verse 23, about the latter time. And the fact that he rises against Jesus Christ, the Prince of Princes. So let's kind of break this down just a little bit. The little horn 
in chapter 8 is the same as the little horn in chapter 7. It would be ter God's not trying to trick or confuse us. There are a lot of Bible teachers who do believe that the little horn in chapter 7 is the Antichrist, but they, they don't believe that the little horn in chapter 8 is the Antichrist. And the, the only reason they don't believe this is they so desperately want the Antichrist to be a European. And I'm here to tell you that the Bible is pretty clear and pretty simple. The Antichrist is not a European. He's not from Rome. He's not from the United States. He's not the king of Spain or the prince of Spain. A lot of people point, point to Spain to find the Antichrist. You're not going to find the Antichrist coming from any of those countries. We'll show, you, we'll show you where he's coming from. God's not trying to trick us. The little horn in chapter 7 is the little horn in chapter 8. And what we learn here, the new revelation of chapter 8, is this Antichrist is going to come out of one of those four kingdoms that we just talked about. He'll come either out of Greece, out of Egypt, out of uh, Turkey, or out of greater Syria, which is a lot of those Middle Eastern countries. Comes out of one of those. These passages that we've read right here are not fulfilled in history. This little horn is still in the future. Uh, verse 19 says it's in the time of the latter time, the appointed time, the end shall be. So we're talking about the end time here. Verse 23, the latter time. Verse 23, when sinners have reached their fullness. How many of you understand that the world is getting more wicked and more wicked and more wicked all of the time? And it's spilling over into America. You see, the whole world wants America to join their party. You see, the whole world wants America to become like them because as long as we stay different, we prick their conscience. Now, pornography is a great problem in America, we understand that. But you know, you can go to any country in the world, turn on the TV, and uh, go to Europe. Just go to Europe. You don't, have, you, know, you don't have to go to some heathen place. Just go to Europe, turn on the TV. It's this, the, the, the nudity and pornography is just, just on every channel all day long. You don't have to subscribe special to it. Go to Europe. Go to any major city in Europe, and, and, and I understand, how many of you know prostitution is a big problem in America? But in Europe, prostitutes are on public display just like lawnmowers are at Walmart. You can go through, uh, Europe makes New Orleans look like a Sunday school party. There are ladies and men dancing nude in display windows on major streets in every major city in Europe. And you just walk in and say, I'll take that one. You shop for them just like, just like we shop for lawnmowers. Sin is increasing around the world. And there comes a time when sin reaches its fullness and God says that is enough. And we see that happening constantly. Verse 26, Daniel is told that this vision is for many days in the future. What we see the little horn here in chapter 8 of Daniel, he is the Antichrist. Let's go to the next slide. And 
All of these actions of the Antichrist here outlined in Daniel chapter 8, you can find references in Revelation, you can find references in 2 Thessalonians, you can find references in Matthew 24 and other prophetic uh, chapters where they all coincide. You can find correlations to all of these things. He, the Antichrist exalts himself against Jesus Christ, the Prince of Princes. The Antichrist goes into Jerusalem. He desecrates the temple and he stops the uh, sacrifices that are taking place there. He is mighty, but he's not in his own. And you see clear references in Revelation to the Antichrist that he receives his power from the devil himself. As we receive our power from God, the Antichrist receives his power from the devil. He conquers and he prospers, but it's through deceit, through lying, and also through prosperity. He uses people's prosperity to trick them. You know, uh, we live in a world that we don't care about anything else, just give us prosperity. Fix our economy, we don't care about morality. We've really changed in America. He persecutes the saints. And then like in so many other Bible prophecies, he will be broken without human means. How many of you know the Antichrist will not be destroyed by a nuclear bomb sent from the United States? It's by the Jesus Christ returning from heaven is what puts his kingdom to an end. Okay, let's go one more, Scott. This is, this is where we've come to here. The visions in Daniel are progressive. We've covered chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8. Chapter 2, remember, the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had, this statue, he was the head of gold. Then we had the breast and arms of silver, brass, iron, feet, uh, toes of clay mixed with iron, all that. So what... Every vision builds upon the previous vision. Each new vision gives you new information that you didn't have yet. So let's talk about it here. Chapter 2, we, we understand that there is a succession of kingdoms in this world. Began with Babylon, then to Medo-Persia, then to Greece, then to the Roman Empire. And then there is the future ten-nation confederacy that comes out of the old Roman Empire. But understand, the old Roman Empire was not just European. It had much of Europe, it had much of Africa, northern Africa, and had uh, much of the Middle East. So this ten-nation confederacy can come out of Europe, out of North Africa, out of Asia, the Middle East. And we understand that during the time of this ten-nation confederacy that Christ returns and it is his eternal kingdom and coming that destroys this ten-nation confederacy. Now, in chapter 7, the revelation is this, that the Antichrist will come out of one of these ten nations. The Antichrist will come out of somewhere or some part of the ancient Roman Empire. But understand, that could, that's three continents involved in that. Asia, Africa, as well as Europe. Chapter 8 that we just covered, the new revelation is this. The Antichrist will come out of one of these four divisions of Alexander's empire. Chapter 9 tells us, and this is something that we're going to enjoy studying, the Antichrist will come out of, and this is a, a, a quote here, people who destroy the temple. The people who destroy the temple 
is going to come out of there. And this is probably going to be the most surprising thing you'll learn in this. Even if, you, if you've been studying uh, Daniel for years and years and years, this, this will be some new information for you. Of, of who these people truly were. We say whether well, they're the Roman Empire, yes. But understand, when we're talking about the Roman Empire, we're not just talking about Europeans. Okay. And then, when we get to chapter 11, we will understand the new revelation there is that the Antichrist is what the Bible refers to as the king of the north. And I'm just going to go ahead and, and give you the information in advance. I'll prove it later. But the king of the north is greater Syria. So I'm just going to jump ahead and give you the information. I don't want, don't want you to feel cheated or left out or I don't want to dangle a carrot in front of you and not feed you. So Scott, if possible, can we go back to that map with the four kingdoms? There we go. Thank you, sir. In Daniel chapter 11, you have the king of the north fighting the king of the south. It's the Seleucid Empire fighting the Ptolemites. Or greater Syria fighting Egypt, and Israel is always caught in the middle, being whooped up on whoever comes through uh, last. The end of Daniel chapter 11, for many, let me back up, for many, many verses, we just trace it through history. We can just, just go right through your secular history book and trace everything that the Bible is saying. But then you reach a point where history ends and prophecy begins in Daniel chapter 11. And by the end of the chapter, it's very clear that the Antichrist is the king of the north, and he comes out of one of these countries. He invades Israel. He comes out of the north. Now understand, uh, we look at a map and we go, well, they, these countries are to the east. Yeah, but they always, because of this Arabian desert right here, nobody, nobody brings their armies across the desert. They always come up to Syria, here's Damascus, and then they always come south to Israel. So the Bible always refers to these kingdoms as a northern kingdom or the king of the north. The Antichrist takes his ten-nation confederacy here. There's more than ten king, uh, nations actually represented in this area. He takes his ten-nation confederacy. He invades Israel, desecrates the temple, sets himself up as God in the temple. He actually conquers Egypt and Libya. Jordan escapes fascinating. I can't tell you why Jordan escapes. Much of Israel flees out of Israel and it's suspected that they flee. Cannot be proven but it's, it's uh, suspected that they flee into Jordan. The Roman legions that destroyed Jerusalem in the year 70 AD all came from this region right here. They were not Europeans. They were led by a European named Titus who becomes the emperor. But they were not Europeans who conquered Jerusalem in the year 70 AD. They were all soldiers from the Roman Empire in this region. 
So I believe that Daniel 11 teaches us that the Antichrist will come from this region. Now, it would be mere speculation to try to get more specific, and I have no reason to speculate. I'm, I'm content with saying he might come from Syria or Lebanon right here. He might come from Babylon. He might come from Persia, Afghanistan, or Pakistan. He might be Arab. He may not be. Many of these countries here are not Arab nations. Do you understand that? Right? Uh, most Babylonians claim to be Arab because they were conquered by the Arabs. The, the original or the indigenous people of Babylon are Assyrian. Assyrian. Word in your Bible. Comes from the Hebrew word Asher, which is also in your Bible. Most of those people today are nominally Christians. They claim to be Christians. Orthodox Christians. Roughly 10% of the population of Iraq are Assyrian Christians right now. People who live in Persia are not Arabs. Afghanistans are not Arabs. Pakistanis are not Arabs. So I don't know which country the Antichrist will come from. I tend to think because he comes from this region and because of some, some indicators in Scripture, it's not just my guess, I tend to think the Antichrist will be a Muslim. One reason I believe that, or I think that, is because when you go to Revelation, the common practice of dealing with Christians is that they are beheaded. Unfortunately, you can get on the internet and watch right now Muslims beheading Christians, Jews, etc. Even, even other Muslims, of course, because that is the most common practice of capital punishment in the Muslim world is that they still behead people. There are other reasons I believe that, and that I'll, I'll get to at some point in this process. I tend to, I tend to think that the Antichrist is a Muslim because there are, there are biblical references that lead me to believe that. But we do not know his ethnicity. So we're not looking to an ethnic group. Could be from this area, could be from this area, could be from this area. So we'll leave it at that. The Antichrist will not come from Jordan, Egypt, or Israel. The Antichrist will not come from a Europe, from America, nor even Russia. I don't believe the Antichrist will not come because he's not from Europe. Well, like I've already said, he won't come from Rome. He won't come from Spain. Okay. That's it. I don't have a, <laughs> I don't have a, a, a fancy conclusion here. It's just that's it. It's, uh, you know, it's about one minute till eight o'clock. It's not the record, but it's real close. How many of you will be mad at me if I let you, just let you go right now? I've got, I've got the laser, you know. I've watched enough TV. You don't ever want to see that, whenever you see that red dot on your shirt, it's a good time to duck. 
especially, especially if you're the pastor of church nowadays. How many of they keep killing pastors? Right? Lori, good to see you. God bless you. Bye, y'all.